Matthew 9, starting verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed at, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now at this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. But knowing what they were thinking, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And then the man got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Now this seems like a simple enough passage, right? You're like, another healing story of Jesus. Great. Nice and simple. We've been talking about these for the last couple weeks as we work through Matthew's uh, chapters 8 through 10. We talked about this long period uh, in the passage in the Gospel of Matthew where he talks about Jesus healing and his authority to heal. But this passage isn't actually that simple. It's rather complex. This one threw the religious leaders of Jesus' day for a loop. They were all fired up about Jesus in this uh, story. But it also continues to throw theologians for a loop today. Why? Well, because Jesus claims to forgive sin. Now, Matthew has been building this careful argument by recounting firsthand experiences of Jesus healing various diseases and sicknesses. We've talked about that the last few weeks. Jesus healing outcasts, Jesus healing lepers, Jesus healing nature itself. And even last week, we talked about Jesus healing the destruction caused by dark spiritual forces. Now Matthew is arguing that Jesus also, besides all that authority, all that power, he has the authority to forgive sin, a role for God alone. And the religious leaders are getting fired up about that. And this passage directly follows last week's story, uh, where Jesus healed those two guys who were possessed by demons. And the Gentiles were like, get out of here, you healing the man oppressed by that legion of the demons cost us a lot of money because our pigs it destroyed our herd of pigs and so jesus gets in a boat returns to his base of operations in capernaum and word spreads that jesus has come back and these friends probably thought when jesus left oh we missed our chance to bring our friend there and get him healed and now they're like jesus is back so they rush their paralyzed friend to jesus and jesus does something weird he doesn't say hey you're not paralyzed anymore get up he goes i forgive your sins and this is frustrating for the religious leaders and for modern theologians because Jesus sees the faith of the friends and forgives this guy of his sins because of their faith. Notice what he says. Uh, when Jesus saw their faith, the friend's faith, he said, I forgive your sins. Well, that seems wrong, right? That's not how it's supposed to work. That's not right, Jesus. You're doing it wrong. He needs personal faith. Uh, just hang on because it gets worse for those of us who like neat bows tied around our systematic theology. Jesus is going to keep throwing us for a loop here. The religious leaders are pissed because they believe only God can forgive sins. By claiming to do so, Jesus is asserting that he is divine. Um, sometimes I'll hear people say Jesus was a great teacher. He never claimed to be God. Have you read the Gospels? Like he's claiming to be God all the time. Look, look at this. He literally, they said he was blaspheming because he was claiming to be God because he was forgiving sins. Jesus here, notice what he calls himself in verse 6, son of man. Son of man was his favorite way to refer to himself. Son of man is a callback to Daniel chapter 7. In the first century Jewish cultures where they knew the Old Testament so well, you mentioned son of man, everybody's thinking Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 verses 13 through 14 says, 
In my vision at night I looked, and before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. He was led into God's presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and all peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so when Jesus calls himself Son of Man, he's claiming to be the once and future king. He's claiming to be a man, but also to have the authority of the Ancient of Days, God himself. And the religious leaders know what he's doing. That's why they call, think he's blaspheming, because he's claiming to be God, to have the authority of God. Now sometimes today I hear two different Christians, maybe from two different backgrounds, or two different denominations, two different networks, two different spheres of the Christian world. Sometimes they disagree over non-essential things, and they yell blasphemy, blasphemy at each other. I see this a lot online where somebody doesn't agree with maybe some element of your, uh, your idea about Christianity, and so some other Christian yells blasphemy at you. Blasphemy isn't when someone disagrees with our theological position. Just because someone thinks a little bit differently than you, that doesn't mean it's blasphemy. Blasphemy is when we misrepresent who God is or what God is like. If Jesus isn't God, he is blaspheming here. But if he is God, he's not. The religious elites were both annoyed that Jesus claimed to be God, but maybe just as much they were annoyed that Jesus claimed to be a God who forgives now, you're sitting in a church on a Sunday hearing a talk from the Bible, so you're probably not that worried about Jesus making claims to be divine. You're probably not that worried that he claims to be a God that heals or a God that forgives. We like those things. Those are, like, those are not bugs in the system. Those are pros. We're excited that that's the kind of God we serve in Jesus. The bigger issue for us as modern readers of the Bible, post-Reformation, is Jesus' confusing decision to forgive the sins of this man. He forgives this man, and the man doesn't speak. He doesn't stand up and say, I believe in Jesus. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't affirm a doctrinal creed. He doesn't come up and say, I believe that Jesus was the Son of God. I believe that he died and that he was resurrected. I believe that he was born of a virgin. I believe it. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't pray a prayer. He doesn't say, Jesus, I accept you into my heart. He doesn't get baptized. He doesn't do anything. And Jesus is like, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't commit to being a disciple. He doesn't confess that Jesus is Lord. He just lays there, and Jesus sees the faith of his friends and forgives his sins. And perhaps even more confusing for us is, how did Jesus forgive sins at all here when he hasn't died on the cross yet? Growing up in evangelical churches, I was told repeatedly, Jesus had to die so your sins could be forgiven. People often quoted Hebrews 9.22, Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. I heard that every week in churches growing up. The only problem with that is they don't include the first part of that verse. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. The Hebrews is uh, beautifully working through the Old Testament to talk about how Jesus has fulfilled what was in the past. And what's happening here is the writer of Hebrews is saying, yeah, we used to have to kill things in order for there to be a forgiveness of sins. Under the law, things were purified with blood. They only quoted the second half because it's what fit into their tightly drawn systematic theology box. And yet, here is Jesus forgiving sins, and he hasn't died yet. If Jesus has to die to forgive our sins, then how did he forgive someone of their sins before his death? Why did Jesus have to die if it wasn't to pay some blood debt to God? 
leave it to Jesus to always poke holes in your carefully crafted theology. If you have a really structured, tight theological framework for how everything works, Jesus is always going to poke holes in it. When we think we have God figured out, Jesus is always there to remind us that we don't. Uh, he's always a few steps ahead of us. Now, we have a couple options here. Some scholars say Jesus is borrowing the forgiveness that he will um, buy when he dies on the cross on credit. Because his death is coming, he's like, I forgive you. I don't really have it yet, but I'm going to have it, so I'm forgiving you on loan for the death I'm going to die in a few more years. Um, I don't have the resources to forgive your sins right now, but I will, so this is on loan, so I'm giving you forgiveness now. That seems pretty silly. That seems pretty ridiculous. Jesus doesn't say, like, your sins will be forgiven once I die on the cross. He just says, your sins are forgiven. And to prove that they are forgiven, he then heals the man, and he gets up and walks. I think it's quite simpler to say, Jesus is God. He can forgive anyone and everyone he wants, whenever he wants, death or no death. That his death was necessary, but for other reasons. Now, uh, anybody really love when my sermons turn into mini-seminary classes? Nobody. Nobody likes it. But that's what it's going to, this is one of those times. So just bear with me. If you're bored by this, everyone has a smartphone, right? Pull out your smartphone, start scrolling. It's going to be five minutes of, like, feel like a mini-seminary class, but we're going to, we have to do it. I can't just pass over it. Like, you have to talk about it. So, scroll on Insta for the next five minutes if you hate seminary lectures, but we're butting up against atonement theory here. Atonement theory is the theological arguments about why Jesus had to die. Seven times the ancient Christians got together to divine certain aspects of their faith. I think we have a list of the seven councils up here. Al, you were on top of it with the slides. It's like, like you sense my intention. Um... So seven councils represented an attempt by church leaders to reach orthodox consensus and restore peace and develop a unified Christendom. They canonized what scriptures were widely using, um, which scriptures they felt like were, had a divine touch, were inspired. They argued about how to refer to Jesus' dual nature as God and man. Famously, um, St. Nicholas you know, punched somebody because they said that God wasn't, or Jesus wasn't fully God. Um, they never locked down, though, in all these councils, why the cross was good. They all agreed that it was, but they said scripture actually supports multiple theories about why Jesus had to die, not just one. One theologian put it like this, the, the atonement, why Jesus had to die, is like a diamond. If you look at it from different perspectives, you can see multiple different angles. You can see different reasons that are equally true. Orthodox Christianity, and when I say that, I don't mean like Greek Orthodox you know, like the Christian denomination, but what I mean is the standard beliefs that all Christians have and have always agreed on since the beginning. Um, Orthodox Christianity is a big tent and allows for a lot of different thoughts and ideas and talks about Jesus, and we all have a Bible up here. Well, because Christianity is a big tent, we agree on these fundamental things, but we can have some different ideas about some of these non-essentials. And so for hundreds of years after Jesus, Christians were getting together, and they were like, okay, these are the books of the Bible that are definitely from God. These are the ones that just, like, came out of nowhere, or they're talking about how do we talk about Jesus both being God and man. Here's what we do say. Here's what we don't say. But they could never settle on this is the only reason Jesus died on the cross. They said there's multiple reasons. According to N.T. Wright, the world's foremost New Testament scholar in our day, here, here's what he says is fundamental that all Christians agree on and believe. There is a God who made the world, who loves the world, 
who made you and through the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, he is reaching out and grasping for you right now and saying, I have genuine life. Here it is. You can share in it right now and forever. Christians everywhere across time, culture, space agree on that. That's the fundamental message of Christianity. And outside of that, there's a lot of room for different ideas and viewpoints within the faith. But growing up in churches, I was rarely told that. I grew up in some Christian Missionary Alliance churches. I grew up in some Baptist churches. I grew up in some independent churches. And they said, our way of thinking is the only way. Everybody else is wrong, even other Christians. We're the only ones who have got it right. I'm pretty sure the other Christians are going to hell because we're the only ones who got it right. Many churches are still fighting the battle of the Reformation, battles with other Christians over how to talk about differences of opinion under things that fit under the big tent of Christianity. Protestants and Catholics used to burn each other, and they would burn each other in the name of Jesus. They both were for Jesus, but they would burn each other, because they both believed in Jesus but disagreed on non-essentials. I was taught certain non-essentials of the faith as if they were essentials of the faith, when I reached seminary, I realized, oh, this isn't true. There's actually a lot of options here within Christianity. There's multiple viewpoints on why Jesus had to die. So if you're watching online or you're here and you're like, man, I'm thinking about leaving Christianity because there's a couple sticking points here that I was taught and I just don't think I can get around them. Before you leave Christianity, double check to see if your biggest sticking points aren't issues that the church has had a wide range of opinions on for thousands of years you might find that your denomination or your network or your background says this is the only way when throughout church history there's actually been multiple viewpoints. Now, we call these different viewpoints about why Jesus had to die atonement theories. Atonement comes from the middle, uh, middle English word atune or atone. Uh, it means agreed or literally at one. When we say someone is, we're at one mind, when Darby and I have a decision to make and we're like, we are of one mind. We think the same of it. We have unity. We're together on it. That's never happened because I'm always stubborn and I always take the opposite position. No, I'm just kidding. Because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension, we can be unified with God. That's what atonement means. Heaven and earth can be reunited. And we don't call these atonement theories because they're wild guesses. Like, I'm just going to come up with a theory. You know, like sometimes when a new Marvel movie is coming out, people come out with theories about what's going to happen. And it's always wrong. It's always these terrible YouTube theories. And I'm like, that's not going to happen. And it doesn't. You know, they're like, every character from Fantastic Four is going to be in it. No, it's not going to happen. Um, they're not theories because they're wild guesses. A theory in theology is a carefully thought out explanation for observations that have been constructed using the scientific method. It brings together many facts and many verses. Atonement theories look at the whole of scripture and try to make sense of what we know. And at this point, you're like, this seminary explanation has gone longer than five minutes, Alec, and you promised me it'd be only five minutes. So hang on, we're almost done. Or you might be saying, why do I care about this, Alex? What does it matter why Jesus died as long as he did? Why do I care what the point of his death was? From one perspective, you're right. We don't need to understand all the atonement theories in order to experience life with Jesus in his kingdom. However, I have found that an average Christian over their lifetime they encounter a number of different atonement theories from different churches they attended, or popular speakers they listened to, or uh, things that they've heard online or on television or books they've read, and their beliefs become a mishmash of incoherent ideas that they hold in equal value in their heads. And this often leads to confusing ideas about what God is like, what he's trying to accomplish in the world, and what they should be doing with their life as a result. 
for me, wrestling with why Jesus needed to die allowed me to shed some man's, man's opinions from my faith and build a more sure foundation upon the bedrock doctrines of Christianity. So, why did Jesus have to die? Well, we need to talk about what his death accomplished, and that will help us to explore these atonement theories. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 4 says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul says that's the most important thing you need to know about Christianity right there. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now, notice what it says here. Jesus' death was doing something about our sin. He had to die because of our sin. It does not say we couldn't be forgiven without his sin. It says his death did something to our sin. Sin is the destructive things that we say or we do or we think that hurt ourselves or hurt others or hurt the world we live in. Sin is less than the ideal vision God had for the world. When we use our strength, our energy, our bodies to sin, we use our God-given power as being made in his image, made to rule and manage the earth. We use that power to push the world further into ruin. That's the definition of sin. Now, there's all kinds of debate over what is and isn't sin throughout church history. Those debates have raged. What we can all agree on, though, is there is something broken in us as humans. Even when we know what is right, often even when we want to do what is right, we do what is destructive. We say something we regret. We do something we regret. There's something off inside of us. The Bible calls that sin. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans 7, 15. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Anybody ever go on a diet? Like this person up here who really loves bread. You know, every time I go on a diet, I'm like, mmm, pizza sounds so good. Krispy Kreme sounds so good. And literally anything than what I'm supposed to eat sounds so good. I know when I eat kale, kale tastes like garbage, by the way. But I know when I eat it, the next day, I feel so good. I feel like I have energy. I feel like I have life. I feel like, you know what? The sun's just shining a little bit brighter. But you know what I do instead of eating kale? I eat donuts, like a whole box of them, and I crash at 5 p.m., and I feel miserable that day and the next day. The death of Jesus claims to be doing something about that self-sabotaging nature inside of us, not just with diet, but with relationships, with addictions, with those things that we say and we do, and we think, why can't this change? Somehow, Jesus' death is doing something about that part of us that's broken inside. Okay, so we know that Jesus' death on the cross somehow reunites heaven and earth, humanity and the Father. It somehow deals with our sins. But that's the what that Jesus' death accomplished. It's the why we're wondering about. Why did a Jewish man dying on a cross produce such a change in the cosmos? He wasn't the first Jewish man to die on a cross, right? Just a few years before Jesus, 6,000 Jewish revolutionaries were crucified on the road in Jerusalem by the Roman Empire. Nor was he the first so-called Messiah in the first century. There were other people who came in like, I'm the long-awaited Messiah, and they were killed and forgotten. And even more importantly, why was the solution to man's sin the death 
of God. Now, there are a dozen or so atonement theories throughout church history. There are seven dominant ones throughout church history. And originally, I was going to go through all seven. And every time I practiced this, I was like, oh, I'm going to lose this person at this point. I'm going to lose this person at this point. I'm going to lose this person. And I was like, okay, we're not going to go over them all. I'm just going to hit some of the most popular ones. First is the moral influence theory. I think I have a list of all seven up there. Uh, once again, ow, on top of it was a slide. This is the seven dominant theories about why Jesus had to die. We're just going to hit some of the major ones. The moral influence theory says the death of Christ is a catalyst to reform society, inspire men and women to follow his example, and live good moral lives of love and sacrifice. The ransom theory finds, it root, finds its roots in the early church, particularly in origin from the third century. He was an early church father. He says that Jesus Christ died as a ransom paid to Satan, that Adam and Eve had actually sold humanity to Satan in the garden, and we were in bondage to Satan. And Satan says, I'll only give him back if you kill yourself. And so Jesus was like, okay, I'm going to lay down my life. But then he was like, haha, I'm the source of life. You kill me, I come back. No. <laughs> That's just how I imagine Jesus talking. Um, that was Origen's ransom theory. And throughout church history, that's been one of the, uh, the arguments about why Jesus had to die. That Jesus' death was a debt paid for Adam's original sin, a ransom paid to Satan in order to win humanity back. I call this the Narnia and the White Witch theory. Anybody see the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Um, Eustace is a rebel, and so he's taken by the White Witch, but he wants to get away from her. And she's like, all oh, rebels belong to me. And Aslan's like, I'll trade my life for his. And the white witch is like, yeah, go to the stone table. And she stabs him a bunch of times. But then the sun comes up and she's like, ha-ha, I'm life itself. You can't. Yeah, you get it. Anyways, the next theory is the Christus Victor atonement theory. This says Jesus Christ dies in order to defeat the powers of sin, death, and devil. That somehow he takes sin and death into himself and then dies to, to defeat them. In order to free mankind from their bondage in this theory the cross does not pay off anyone but it defeats evil thereby setting the human race free um, the penal substitutionary atonement theory which is such a mouthful we're just gonna say PSA going forward as I talk about it PSA is the development of the Reformation the reformers especially Kelvin and Luther they took Anselm's satisfaction theory which we didn't talk about they modified it they added a more legal framework into this notion as the cross as satisfaction. And the result of that is within PSA, Jesus Christ dies to satisfy God's wrath against human sin. God is satisfied with punishing Jesus in the place of mankind. Now, controversial theologian Rob Bell once joked, he says, you know what PSA says? God's less angry when he beats his son. Um, and I mean, that sounds really bad, but that's essentially what the theory says. God was so angry at us, he wanted to just destroy us and wipe us out, but instead he took it out on his son, and so now he's happy. That makes God sound a little weird. In some churches, confirming PSA is akin to accepting the gospel. Albert Moeller, the president of the largest Protestant seminary in the United States, said this. This is a direct quote. I watched the video. I saw him say it. He said, penal substitutionary atonement is the gospel. That's what the gospel is, that God tortured and killed his son because he wanted to do that to us, but he did it to his son instead, so now he's happy. But the problem with that is the gospel is not an atonement theory. Atonement theory is not the gospel. The 
gospel is the good news of a coming kingdom that will set all wrongs right and end injustice and poverty and sickness and disease, war, racism, and addiction. When King Jesus comes, his rule will be so good it will work backwards to unravel the worst moments of our lives and our stories. Because of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, we can become citizens of his coming kingdom. We can become like him. We can be with him, become like him, and do what he did. Jesus offers abundant life. That's the good news. It's life so good, death cannot stop it. Just like death couldn't stop Aslan, the lion that went to the, uh, the stone table, or couldn't stop Jesus who went to the cross and came back. It's a life that continues on through death into more life. That's the gospel of Jesus. So we come to Jesus, we learn from him, we become apprentices of his life, and we see that it's good. Now we can disagree about atonement theories, and lots of Christians do and have throughout history, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is Christianity's bedrock. Okay, seminary lecture over. It went for eight minutes instead of five. Everybody okay? Okay, anybody catch up on their Insta? Anything exciting on there? I should? Okay, I'll look afterwards. Let's draw some quick conclusions. When Jesus forgave the man's sin, notice what he did. He didn't say, hey, your sins are forgiven. Enjoy being paralyzed. The most important thing is your sins are forgiven. Have a good life. He didn't do that, right? What did he do then? He didn't meet the man's biggest spiritual need and ignore the man's biggest physical need. I grew up in and around churches that said if we address people's big need for spiritual salvation, we could ignore their big needs for physical things. We were all about getting people to say Jesus is Lord, but if they were having trouble in their life, we're like, good luck. The important thing is you know about Jesus now. Jesus never saw it as an either or, but as a both and. Uh, many times the churches I grew up in around, they saw serving the community as less important than preaching to the community. They saw giving the homeless man a religious informational track as more important than giving him food or water. Jesus never separates those two ideas. When he saves, he doesn't just want to save the intangible spirits inside our bodies. He wants to save all of us. That's what the resurrection is about. Now, some of that we won't see here until Jesus has fully come and he is king and his kingdom is on earth. But Jesus is never satisfied to just see people spiritually healed and not physically healed because we are one being. We are a body and a spirit. Salvation, salvation in scripture can mean justice. A lot of times the word translated salvation is also translated justice or healing or rescue. We have a very, very narrow view of salvation in the Western church. The word we translate into English as salvation is soteria, which means rescue or safety, or well-being. William Barclay, a professor of divinity and biblical criticism at the University of Glasgow, says, in classical Greek, soteria means deliverance or preservation. It can be used for a man's safe return to his own country or after a long absence or a journey. It can mean a guarantee of safety. It can mean security against danger. It can just mean that you're doing well. By far, the most meaning of soteria in the first century is bodily health. For instance, a member of the family writes home and says, tell me about your soteria. They're not talking about, tell me about your faith salvation, but tell me about how you are. Jesus is not just content with saving your soul and then leaving you to rot where you are. He wants to transform our whole lives. So what do we do with this as we come to an end? Number one, don't draw too tight of a theological box for Jesus to be God. Jesus likes to surprise us. And uh, believe me, I went to seminary. I love seminary. I love reading and studying. I love systematic theology. I love trying to make it all fit together. 
But when you draw too tight of a box on God, he will always poke holes in your idea. Leave room for God to surprise you, to upset the tightly drawn theological box we've created for him. I mean, I want Jesus here in this passage to not look at the face of the friends and say, hey, your sins are forgiven. I want him to say, now, if you admit, believe, and confess, then your sins can be forgiven too. And you too. For, like, I want him to walk through all this, and he doesn't do that. He doesn't always say what we want him to say as modern Westerners on this side of the Enlightenment and the Reformation. Let Jesus have space to forgive who he wants and to surprise you if it's not who you would have forgiven. Second, Jesus can forgive sins. Have yours been forgiven? He's really willing to forgive. He's forgiven this guy, and he didn't even do anything. So if you've never said, Jesus, will you forgive me for my sins? I want to learn from you. I want to learn to live and love like you did. Jesus will welcome you with open arms and forgive. Now, that doesn't mean that all the consequences of your sins just go away. And he's like, oh, you shot those people? Well, it's all good now. No jail time for you. Jesus forgave me, right? There's still consequences. There's still pain and heartbreak and tears. But as between you and Jesus, on your worst day, when you did the worst thing, Jesus said, I love you just as much as on your best day. And that blows my mind because there's been some bad days for me. There's probably been some bad days for you where you're like, I said that, I did that, I thought that, I shouldn't have. And Jesus said, my love is consistent and constant. Come to me, confess your sins, and I will forgive. Number three, bring friends to Jesus. I mean, that's what these guys did, right? They dragged this guy in. We don't have it here, but there's more details in Mark 2 and Luke 5. This is the story where the friends couldn't get in the door to Jesus because so many people were gathered around him in the house. So they ripped off the roof and they lowered the guy in to Jesus. So Jesus is teaching in this house and all of a sudden pieces of the roof start coming down and then sunlight comes in and they're just lowering this guy right in front of Jesus and they're like, could you uh, heal our paralyzed friend? <laughs> you know, and that's when Jesus says, I see your faith. Take heart, son. I forgive your sins. These people were willing to destroy someone's roof to get to Jesus. I bet they had to pay for that. But it didn't matter because they wanted their friend to encounter Jesus. There were too many people to get through the door, so they made a door through the roof. What barriers can you remove between your friend and Jesus? They could be emotional barriers, they could be physical barriers. Remove barriers between your friends and Jesus because Jesus forgives sins. Jesus heals. Jesus is good. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this message. Thank you for the reminder that you forgive. And Lord, help us be always busy about bringing people to you because you change lives. You changed my life. You're changing my life. As I learn to live in love like you, I'm becoming more like you. And somehow in that, I'm becoming the best version of myself. God, if there's no one here, if there's anyone here or watching online who has never said, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I brought ruin to my life, to the lives of the people around me, even to the planet that I live on. Will you forgive me of my sins? Will you teach me how to live your abundant life so that I might go 